It's Paul Ruse here from Performance by Design and welcome back to the Culture Couch. And Murph, welcome, mate. Good to see you again. My partner in crime. And I'm going to introduce Brett Stevens, but I'll give him an introduction, uh, Murph. Really interesting story about Steve-O who came to footy late. So we're going to talk a bit about resilience, then the the concept of team. So as a teammate of mine, but then I think the unique of of Steve-O's story is then went on to coach tennis players. So that individual aspect is really fascinating to me and also how it relates to the corporate world, as, as you and I well know. So, Brett, welcome to the Culture Counts, mate. Yeah, so nice nice to be here, Murph. And uh, I was used to be his crime partner many years ago when I covered for Paul on many games and made him look good. And that, that, that actually taught me a lot of skills later to try and teach guys how to overcome adversity, Paul. Well, you certainly overcome <laughs> adversity, there's no question about that. And we're going to start with that because what I want to touch on that particularly now with the draft age and players getting taken at sort of 18, and and a lot of it is purely and simply based on talent and speculation, Murph, isn't it? We're really not sure. But your journey was very, very different, so I think it's worth chatting on it and in relation to resilience because I'm sure there were times through that early period of Essendon under-19s, but take us through and but take us into the mindset back in, in, you know, when you are 18, 19, 20. Yeah, I think, look, basically I, I started at Essendon as a, a 17-year-old under-19s and we locked horns a few times, as you remember, and I taught you a few things there that you took, <laughs> made you a better player. But, um, look, for me, I think, and you know yourself, when you go to an AFL club, you don't, it's like you look around, you see all these big guys you've been watching on television and, and you're a little bit intimidated, but eventually you start to get a bit more comfortable and and I think, I was really willing to learn and want to get better. And I remember my first year at Essendon was under Barry Davis and Kevin Sheedy came in and he was a bit of a revelation as far as teaching the little things and understanding the little things of the game. And I remember one time he came to me and, and asked me what my goals are and I just and I just gave him the one thing that I've stuck by my whole life and that was to just try and be the best I can be. And he was actually, well, that's a great goal, you know, stick to that. And that's what I've always tried to do is try and learn and understand how can I be better and how can I give myself my best chance. So, you know, we could go on for hours about this, but I'll try and be a bit briefer with it. But so after three years at Essendon and and learning a lot and feeling like I was getting better, um, I got cut from the list. Um, you know, I think I was upset, but I don't think I was devastated. I was more like, this is my journey and I've got to try and embrace this and try and become better. So I then had a few offers to play in different places around Australia, ended up in Tasmania, had a, had a good solid year there. Then I got invited to do pre-season at Collingwood, no guarantees, did the whole pre-season, didn't make the list. Um, so there was another little setback. Um, after that, Another year in Tasmania, did the pre-season at the Swans, played a couple of reserves games for them, but, but um, after a couple of games they decided they, they didn't want me. Um, another little bit of adversity and negativity, but still I feel like this was making me stronger instead of going the other way. And, and I could have easily become a victim and let it bring me down, but, but I think with every little bit of negativity that happened to me, whether it was ingrained through my dad, through my mum and dad or whatever it was, I felt like, okay, I'm not going to go the negative path. I'm going to just try and get better. So part of what I was doing along the, along the way was I was working on my fitness. I was getting stronger. I was, I was trying to understand my diet and my rest. 
and and my strengths. And one of my biggest strengths and weaknesses was I wasn't that quick off the mark, but my biggest strength was my endurance. So in the end, it was understanding how I could use that. Who did you learn, lean on in that period? Because it's, I guess we're going through a pretty tough time at the moment. And when you take yourself back, was that ingrained? You mentioned mum and dad, I obviously know them well as well. Um, but was that ingrained or did you have to lean on some of your coaches, some of your teammates? Take us through that period because it's a really interesting time in your life, obviously. Yeah, it's it's funny. I, You know, obviously there, there were guys at the club that you would – you'd be attracted to as far as their their um, their work ethic and and how they went about it so those were sort of the people that I'd be I would I would be more attuned to, to be with and be around and and obviously those good habits rub off you know obviously if you go the other way if you yeah. start hanging out with the people who aren't doing the work then you're probably going to end up <clears throat> being that way um, but look in the end my my mission became, not not to be an AFL champion or anything, but because it was ended up being such a long journey, it was like nine years, mm. twenty six before I played my first game. My mission was to get one AFL game, yeah, and that was my holy grail in the end. And you know, I I just think my teammates definitely there was an impact, but part of what I would do too, though, I would see look at the guys who were doing well and the guys who aren't doing well, and and I would use the guys who aren't doing well, well, I'm not going to be like that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And the guys who are doing well, well, I want to strive to be like that. Mm. And it's probably a common sense sort of thing to do. And, you know, that that's what gave me the skills later on in other sports, which we can talk about later. But I just feel, I don't know, maybe I wasn't smart enough to make it complicated, <laughs> but I was like, oh, well, there, the good guys are yeah, doing yeah, that. Yeah. I'm going to try and do that, mm. yep. you know. And so... so I, I think it was ingrained in me from my mum and dad. You know, we're from a small country town and all we did was play football in the in the winter, cricket in the yeah. summer, mm. you know, and, and just we'd compete and have fun. and, and but, but we would never feel sorry for ourselves if things didn't go our way. We'd go, okay, bad luck, let's try again. So when <clears throat> you were 26, I think, when you got your first game? Yeah. yeah. Were there, were there, <clears throat> there must have been moments, um, Brett, where you... you Almost gave up, or said, "I'm going to go and get a real job. I'm going to go and so." Yeah. Talk us through those moments, and then how you actually. No, no, I'm going to keep going because at 26, it's pretty late to play first game. It is. It is, um, and and especially with my journey, and it's funny some of the things that happened. You know, 1985, after not making it at the Swans, not making it Collingwood, not making it Essendon, having having some good years though. You know, like I was playing good football. Um, consistently, so I was building, but I, th- I think my first year in Western Australia, I won the best and fairest for East Perth, and and I was a key forward. I kicked seventy odd goals, playing full forward, centre half forward, and probably had the best year of my career up until that date. And then the next year, I thought, okay, if if I can put in another great preseason, and this is just me thinking, this is how I was mm. thinking, maybe another uh, an AFL club might be interested. So I put in a huge preseason, and I, you know, I, I never stopped training once the year finished. Where other guys have stopped and whatever, I would just keep going and going. And I was, I can remember doing sessions on the, on fields on my own where I imagined, you know, leading out and running back here and running back there, and kept going in the gym and the whole thing. And start of nineteen eighty six, 
I thought, okay, I want to have another big year. After five or six games, I couldn't get a kick. I was trying too hard. And I actually ended up getting dropped to the reserves in 1986. And now that could have been the end moment for me, you know, but I I didn't see it that way. I, and I, I probably wasn't even thinking AFL right now. I was thinking, mm. let's get back yeah, yeah. in the mm. let's get back in the senior team. But what that did, that gave me that actually negative turn into another positive where they played me in the back line. I'd never played in the back line ever in my whole career, right through my juniors. And I think the first game I played in the reserves, I played centre half back and I might have got 30 or 40 touches and I just run around and thought, oh, how easy is this? You know, it's new, new um, lease of life. And so I played a few games in the reserves and a few weeks later I was back in the senior team. But there was actually a sports psychologist at the club then and he told me he'd been watching me and he came up to me earlier in the week and he said, look, I've been watching you play. Look, I know you're training hard. You're doing all the, all the right things. He said, your biggest issue is not so much you wanting it, but you just want it too much. And you've got to learn to bring it back a bit. So instead of listening to music to, to get you motivated, listen to music to bring you down a bit. Instead of going out there wanting to knock your opponent's head off, maybe crack a joke with him, you know. Oh, what's going on with your hairdo today, Paul? You know, and he's always struggled with his hair a bit. If he actually has got that little cowlick there. <laughs> but... I learned to take the edge off it a bit. And obviously, I still didn't get it perfect, but I learned to take the edge off. So I thought, okay, this week I'm going to do it. I'm going to try and be more relaxed before the game. Instead of running around, ranting and raving, I'm going to try and crack a few jokes. I'm going to even crack a joke with the umpire. And I went out that week and I played full forward and I kicked eight goals that week. Mm. Now, I'm not saying... You know, I just was able to change it in that moment and it was still going to be a struggle for me to bring it back and relax. But that I was lucky enough to have success the first week. So then that made me realise that I have to understand relaxed intensity. And so instead of having the tunnel vision, having the peripheral vision. Well, on that too, Brad, is one of the things we talk a lot about is process versus outcome. So you're going through this process of wanting to be a great player but you're thinking about, I want to play AFL football. How did you balance that out? Like, was that at times related to being too intense because you were looking more at the outcome about playing AFL football? How how did you reconcile that? Short-term goals, long-term goals? You know, I don't think I was focusing on the result. And one of the biggest mantras I have with the athletes I work with, it's, look, I've been lucky enough to work with number ones in the world, Mm. but I don't really believe in rankings Mm. you know I believe in achieving your best you know releasing your potential and and I think in my mind I was like you know my mission is to keep trying to be the best I can be and if I don't make it in the AFL then I'm not a failure Mm. you know and and I think the things I talk about to other people in, in their in the athletes I work with it's like it's not about being number one it's the best you can be might be 50 mm. or, or 300 or 400, but it's not about that. And, and even about winning and losing, I, I, find, mm. I find it actually amusing that, you know, you have two football teams go out and play and you have a winner and a loser. Yeah. Now, I don't think losing, it's a game of sport. You have, for me, you have a winner and then the other team, and there, it's only a loss if you don't learn from that mm. loss, mm. you know? And I, I, I don't know what you think, but 
I find it funny the word loss. You know, well, I think we talk about it all the time, and the biggest, probably positive and negative, is the ladder is there all the time. So everyone can see yeah. whether you won or, in in real terms, lost. What we focus on is the things that you're talking about, Brett. Okay. Is like what makes up that game. Yeah. You know what makes up all the choices you've made throughout that game, and you know if you've done enough right, it's the ability to analyse something without actually worrying about the yeah. outcome, which is really difficult in yeah. a team sport, Murph, isn't yeah. it? Hundred percent, and it requires so much resilience to keep coming back. I, I, I'll just come back to that finally, just to finish it off. Uh, Brené Brown talks a lot about building resilience when people are strong, so that. If you if you're trying to build resilience when they're down, it's it's very difficult. Yeah, you, you obviously are an optimist, I suspect, um, and very resilient. Where did you get resilience from? What, like as a kid growing up, we like you you've obviously got a very strong mindset. Where did that come from? You know, it was probably growing up. Um, as far as you know, like. Football-wise, we didn't have a team where, where I'm from. I was from Lake Eildon, like a 1,000 people. And the only football we would play would be on the park on a Saturday. We'd have the radio there with the, with the, the football in the background and we would play all day. And there would always be fights and there'd always be, you know, someone would end up crying at some stage. But, but everyone just kept having a go and maybe it goes back mm. to then. But, but I think more so, I think when I first started at Essendon, you know, I, I didn't have any clue how to run or the whole thing and, and I could I could see, okay, I need to get better at this and this. And then I, I think I started I understood that if I'm consistent with my effort, I can I can become better. And I think that became a mantra as far as, you know, the consistency in my effort as far as with, with everything, um, was the thing that kept me going. As far as just keep looking forward, keep trying to get better. And Sure. Look, I'm not saying I was perfect. There, there was definitely moments where I, you know, like I think, for example, driving home after a practice game at Essendon, you know, because then, the, you know, how mm. big the practice yeah, games yeah. were, yep. Rusey, and driving home in my car, just yelling in the car, going, come on, you know, why why couldn't I get the ball today? You know, and and there were definitely lots of those moments. And, and I think it's, in the end, I, I think I got over disappointment pretty quickly as far as, okay, just let's try better the next time. And I think for me as a teammate, Brett, I reckon you touched on before, learning. You're a very good learner and simple concepts, which probably aren't as simple now, and we'll probably touch on a few later on, but I think you're a great learner. You're a great student. And I think if you're always prepared to learn and, and don't think you know everything, when when did when do you reckon that hit the fact that well I know what my strengths are I know I need to get bigger I know I need to get stronger rather than necessarily working on my speed it's not going to be my strength but my strength is my endurance when do you when do you think you really got that concept of listening and then actioning because it's a really simple plan you touched on it before but so many people don't really get it yeah I I think it was evolving as I was going along you know I think it's I think some people maybe give up mm. when they don't fully understand what they're doing. Yeah. And, mm. and this is one of the things I talk about with the athletes I work with, with the tennis players, with the golfers, is I, I fully believe there's a lot of professional athletes out there 
who are so good, their talent can get them to a certain level, but they actually don't have a full understanding of what mm. they're actually trying to do. Yeah. You know, so Tiger Woods, for example, I think he ticks the boxes on yep. all levels. Mm. You know, he Roger Federer does. Mm. Rafa Nadal, yeah, Nadal yeah. does. But, you know, and Roger Federer, as a young guy, I remember seeing him as a, a 17, 18-year-old playing against one of my players. And we, we didn't know who he was and someone gave us the the scouting that this guy's like a mini Sampras mm. and the guy I work with, he beat him easy and this guy's attitude was terrible and we go, oh, that guy's not a mini yeah, Sampras. Yeah, yeah. He ends up being better than Sampras. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time... Yeah, he didn't know what he, he didn't know. know what yeah, he was yeah, doing. Yeah. But know? that comes back to the listening. I guess that's the concept I really want to explore you with because a lot of people don't listen. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it does take time. You know, no one's suggesting as an 18-year-old you turn up to a footy club or even as a 26-year-old. You've still got a lot to learn, but yeah, you're yeah. a great listener. And I think you're also great at exploring other – I mean, you used to run with – maybe we talk a little bit about running with Nick Badeau and Steve Monaghetti and you did the bike riding and all that. So you're sort of almost ahead of your time in weight sort of a little bit. I mean, although that concept had come in. Yeah, yeah. But you were great at listening and exploring different concepts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I was lucky enough to – Nick Badeau was a good mate of mine who's one of Australia's top athletic coaches and he was Monaghetti's training partner mm. back in the day and I was lucky enough to go and do pre-season with, with those guys and I remember actually one pre-season the club actually banned me for two yeah, weeks. Right. Yeah, yeah. They, they thought I was doing too mm. much but I knew what I was doing mm. and I actually remember the general manager was out driving through Yarra Glen somewhere. This is when I'd been banned for training for two weeks because they thought I was losing too much weight and I was out there on my on my road bike and I'm just on a 100k ride. <laughs> you know? But but look, look, being around those people, yeah. see, like understanding, like, like for example, they would do a, Monaghetti and his training group, they would do a three-hour run every Sunday. Mm. And I went and did the run with them one day and I'm 90, over 90 kilos. Yeah. And they would only let me run for two hours. So after two hours, I go, okay, Moose, you've got to you're stop done. Yeah, or yeah. you're going to injure yourself. Mm. And just to be with those guys, you know, I'm running as hard as I can to try and keep up with them and they're just trotting along and talking, you know, and I'm on the back just hanging on and hanging on. And, Can't breathe for two hours. And, and, you know, the respect I had for those guys, yeah, yeah. though, as far as learning from their adversity and and pe- I don't think people even realise mm. what these guys do. Yeah, yeah. You know, the... the you know, you, imagine you're sitting out on a 40K mm. marathon, mm. but this is not a marathon, this is a race... Mm. And you've got to embrace being uncomfortable for two hours, mm. you know. And that's maybe that's when I made that link yeah, yeah. because I know later on at Fitzroy, um, you know, you'd always be nervous before your fitness test, you know, your four K yeah, yeah, time yeah. trials. Mm. And I obviously set the bar high for myself, and I was under pressure to finish in the top two every time. And if I didn't, it was like, oh, what's mm. what's, wrong with what's wrong? And I remember in the end doing some of the fitness tests, and I was like, wow. That was actually too easy for me. Mm. I'd, I'd become so comfortable being yeah, yeah, uncomfortable, yeah. Mm. and I'd done it so many times mm. that, sure, I was uncomfortable, but I got used to it. And and I think that's a huge thing in in understanding whether you're a golfer or or a cricketer or a tennis player. I think in the end, Ruzin, you'll agree we're, we're all losers mm. in professional sport. Mm. You know, even Michael Jordan would have lost, lost more yeah, yeah, than yeah. he won, mm. but. It's how you deal with that negativity, how you deal with the losses. Do you learn mm. or do you just put your head in a bucket of sand? Yeah. 
and and not learn. And great, um, great messages. Yeah. Great messages. Um, so you got you got to Fitzroy eventually. Well, this is so 1986. I'm yeah. playing in the reserves. Yeah. In in the in the WAFL, and I get get back into the senior team, and, and pretty much played the rest of the year in the back line. And now I could have just gone, okay, that's I'm just going to be a back line playing the WAFL. And I um, I really wanted to have one more go at the AFL, so I actually rang Essendon and said, "Do you mind if I come back and do pre-season?" And I said, "I know there's no guarantees, but I really just want to come back and have one more go." And you know, I'm, I'm thankful that they said yes and they said, okay, you can come back, but there's no guarantees. Now, I could have easily just stayed in Western yeah. Australia. I was comfortable. Yep. I was enjoying my life, but I thought I'm going to give it one more go. I, I felt like I needed to. So I went back and um, pre-season, the practice games for the first time, and I was always a slow starter and that maybe that's what held me back earlier mm. in my career, but the first practice game, I, I, I kicked a bag of goals and had a great game. Then the next practice game, I had another solid game. And then uh, I received a phone call from Fitzroy and they wanted to talk to me. And um, they basically they basically said, look, we want to sign you. We want to put you on our list. And, um, you know, right there, I was like, oh, wow. You mm. know, and, and so then I went back to Essendon and they wanted to have me on their list as well. So all of a sudden, I've got two clubs want to have me on the list. I spoke to Essendon and um, basically Fitzroy guaranteed me, didn't say I would be 100% in the, in the senior team, but they said, if you keep up with the form you're doing now, mm. we'll have you in our night game next Saturday in the senior team and you'll be a great chance to play in our first game of the year. And so in the end, I decided to go with Fitzroy. Um, played in the night game out at VFL Park, was like my first sort of senior game, but not really, you know. Mm. My first game was running out the MCG against Melbourne, um, you know, in front of, what, 50,000 or whatever. And for me, running onto the ground, it was unbelievable. I, I couldn't actually believe it. And, and no one else would have known how I was feeling because mm. it was funny because back then, you know, you try and act like, you know, I belong here in the whole thing. But, you know, I was almost embarrassed of my journey back then. Mm. Like people would say, oh, you've been at more clubs than – you got more clubs than Jack Nicholas, mm. you know, and there'd be all these jokes. And back then I was embarrassed because you walk around all these guys yeah, who yeah. played, you know, look, Ruzi's a big high roller and all these all these guys. But now I look back mm. and I'm so proud yeah, yeah. of all those moments. And yeah. to run out onto the MCG, you know, the first few minutes I was like, oh, I can't believe it. I think I dropped a mark in the first few minutes because I, I just couldn't believe I was even out there. But then I... Then I think I kicked two goals with my first two kicks in that game, and and uh, you know that was that was a great moment for me. Fantastic! And tell us about the culture of Fitzroy because Rizzi talks about it all the time the leadership, the culture when you walked into that club. What did you pick up? What did you see? What were the leaders doing? Well, I think one of the big strengths we had at Fitzroy, and this is where. You know, and I'm sure Rusey would agree. I think if the club had been financial mm. and we had been able to keep our group together, I think we would have won flags. Mm. You know, you, you look at the guys like Rusey and Purdy and Richard Osborne and Alistair Lynch and... Brothers, Butchie Gale, yeah, Johnny Blakey. Johnny Blakey. Mm. If we had been able to keep that core group together and the club hadn't crumbled the way it did, I, I honestly believe we would have had great success. And 
And the big difference at Fitzroy compared to other clubs that I've been at were the fittest guys at the club were the best players. You know, the, the, they mm. were the guys out in front setting, setting the example in the fitness tests. Mm. And, you know, and I've had a lot of younger guys who, who didn't quite make it at Fitzroy who I've run into years later and they were, they were full of admiration of, of what we were all doing. And, and I think it was just, you know, I've, had, I've, I've often had, I've had conversations with Rusey a few times. I said, I think our biggest strength is that we don't know how to complicate it. We're mm. not smart enough to complicate yeah. it. Mm. We just see it, we keep it real. Mm. You know, if you want to have success, it's not going to be handed to you. You've got to work out how can I give myself my best chance. And in the end, you're a champion no matter what, you know. And so it's... No, Fitzroy was a great time and I think we kept it simple and we kept it real and we, what, we tried what do you to give our by best. That? In the end, you're a champion no matter what. Well, I mean, like I said, it's about reaching your potential. Yeah. You know, it, it's not about the result. It's about the effort. And that's... I know guys who I work with, I drive them crazy mm. with that, but I have to keep reminding them because it's always a... For example, the young golfer I work with is on the PGA. Last week, he... he was an alternate in the PGA event. He got in at the last minute. He got to the re- he got to the event. He shot five under. Was tied for eleventh, and it's a big year for him. His first year in the PGA. Next day, he goes out and shoots three three over, and misses the cut by one shot. Now, you might think that's a negative thing. You know, a lot of people look at that mm. and go, "Oh, what a bummer." That's yep. negative, but I was like, I see more positives than negatives. He was able to get there late without much preparation and shoot five under and be up there with all the top golfers in the world, Rory McIlroy, Phil Mickelson, all these guys, on his first year in the PGA, he, and he went seven under for 14 holes. Then the next day mm. he goes three over. Now, we could focus on the three over yeah, or we could focus on the five under. And also on the three over, he was five over at one stage and fought back in the last nine yep. to be three over. Now, there's a lot of positives there. And, and I think one of the things as humans, I think we're programmed to be comfortable. Like, look, mm. we're sitting here on this beautiful couch, Paul. Would have cost a lot of money. No, to, secondhand. Oh, a yeah. secondhand couch that he got at Vinnie's. We're sitting here. We're not sitting on a bed of nails, are we? Mm. We want to be comfortable. Mm. We're programmed to be comfortable. So it's about getting used to getting out of that comfort zone and, and understanding that success can come if we keep striving for our best, but there's going to be a lot of steps along the way that you have to keep building. And I think we talk about this a lot too, you touched on it. We're, we're much better at giving negative feedback than positive feedback. Yeah, and a footy exactly. club's a great example of continually people telling you what you can't do, what you can't do, what you can't do. And I think you're a great example of early on working out what you were good at. And I think if too many champions, and we'll move away from footy in a minute, but too many champions, even in football, some of the best players I've seen have worked out what their weaknesses are and don't focus too much on their weaknesses. And they focus so much on their strengths. And I think that was one of your great areas, Brett Kirk, you know, Kieran Jack, guys that are – because you did – blowing your trumpet, you did get to some really good heights. So not undervaluing now your performance as an AFL footballer because you've yeah, talked yeah. about how hard it was. You've talked about it a bit embarrassing running on the MCG. But I, but I want to give you some acknowledgement about how good you became as an AFL player 
Um, and those things you talked about drove you to that. So once once you got there, it wasn't a case of I got there, I only want to play one game. Yeah, yeah. You then took those tools and became the absolute best player you could possibly be. Talk us talk us through that as well once you got the Fitzroy. Yeah, and, and you know, it's funny you look back on your journey in life. You know, how did a, a, a young boy mm. from Il- Lake Ilden mm. who had no interest in tennis yeah. end up being in L.A., living in L.A., and working with Pete Sampras, one of the greatest players of all time. And mm. at the time, the, the Grand Slam holder and, you know, all the, all the different things that went with that, travelling the world in private jets and this and that. I mean, how did that happen? And just I'll just digress a little bit. I can remember being at the US Open one year and I'm, I go and sit out in the, in the player box and Pete's going out for the final against Andre Agassi. And I walk out and I sit down and, and all of a sudden, oh, Paul Anacone's there, he goes, oh, oh Moose, this is... Um, this is Christy Brinkley. And I go, oh, hi, Christy, how are you? And then there's the Baldwin brothers. They're sitting over there and they go, hey, Moose, hey, Moose, man. And then there's there's John Lovitz, the comedian. Then there's this other actor guy and get to meet all these people in LA. And I, I sit down for the final and I'm thinking, how did I get here? <laughs> you know, yeah, how, no, yeah. Honestly, how did mm. this happen? Mm. You know, this is bizarre. And, and, and for a moment, I was just reflecting mm. on that whole, that whole journey and and really, like one of my things I say to the athletes I work with when I start off with, I go, look, guys, anything's possible. Mm. You know, you can achieve anything you like. Like for me, it took nine years to get to play AFL and my goal was to play one game. Mm. But then I actually exceeded my expectations and I ended up, you know, playing 130-odd games and a couple of runner-up when you BNFs. Got there, and- I guess when, when you got to the club, did you have to adjust those expectations straight away or, or do you think – your habits were so ingrained, it was a case of, well, I'm just going to continue doing the things that I've been doing to get here? Yeah, I think I was good at staying in the moment. Yeah. yeah you know, from yeah. week to week. And and there were even little moments at Fitzroy, like I remember we were playing the Sydney Swans in maybe my third game. Mm. And, um, and the runner came out, it was a, a quarter and a bit, and I'd barely had a touch, and I was playing full forward, and the runner came out and said, you're off. Yeah. And just as he said, I'm off, the ball was coming down. I decided to go back yeah. and I ended up going up, taking a mark and going back and kicking a goal. The runner comes back out, you're staying on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I ended up having a pretty good game. So, you know, what would have happened if I didn't stay there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. There's, there's all these little moments. But I just think I was, I became really good at not getting too far ahead of myself mm. and not looking too far back and just trying to be in the moment. Of course, you can't be perfect with that. You're going to have negative thoughts, you know, what if, yeah. all these thoughts. We're all human. We, we, we can't strive for perfection, but we can keep striving to give our best. And I, and I think, you know, whether it's people who are dealing with depression and obviously, you know, there's a lot of issues that go mm. with that sort of thing and, and you know, the, the, the toughness of whether you're a CEO in a company and you're trying to trying to bring your team together and things aren't going your way, in the end, you just got to look at it. You know, there's two options. You can sink or you yeah, can yeah. swim. Mm. And I think, and you know yourself, you know, you, I think professional sport is really, really tough. Mm. The disappointments and for you, you know, winning the grand final, then losing mm. the grand final, could have been two grand finals, it could have been no grand finals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the thing is just – understanding that it's there's only one choice in the end yeah 
But that doesn't mean you can't be disappointed when things aren't going your way. One golfer I work with, he, um, he's like, he was really trying to embrace what I was talking about, you know, being uncomfortable and keep and focus on, I want you to focus on your effort. I want you to focus on your effort. And after one round, he said, I can't keep focusing on my effort. I'm a result-driven person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't listen, mate. You're not getting what I'm saying, yeah, yeah. you know. It's the effort will bring the result. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it goes back to that understanding. And part of that understanding is being in the moment, you know. Yeah. What about, is there anything you look back on as before we move to the tennis and the next day? Is there anything you look back on you would have done something, anything differently? Because you've achieved a lot through adversity, resilience, perseverance. I think your analogy about staying in the moment is absolutely correct. I mean, your ability just to do things and create habits, which we talk about a lot. Is there anything you look back on during that time and you say, oh, I wish I had done that or I could have done that better? Yeah, maybe, maybe learned how to relax more mm-hmm. earlier, yeah. you yeah. know. Um, maybe that would have given me another opportunity. You know, look, it probably... You know, back when I was, back in those early days, maybe when I was at the Swans, yep. it would have been nice if I had been able to just realise then that I had to chill out a bit mm. and, and bring it bring it back, you know, and, and not be so obsessed with I must do this, you know. And I think that was my biggest weakness early days was just trying too hard. Mm. So instead of coming out and marking yeah, the ball yeah, and letting yeah. it come to me, it was more like yeah, crushing the it. ball, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. and... And then being wasting too much energy on other things, you know, like, like that intensity and like being hard on myself. And I, so I think if it, if I had been able to maybe cut myself a little bit more slack, be it sounds a bit corny, but sort of start being my own biggest fan mm, instead mm, of yeah, when I yeah. was out there being too critical. But but I think that's the conundrum in sport and life. And I like to talk with the tennis players and, and golfers and surfers and all these different athletes I've been working with, I like to say you've got two hats. You've got the professional golfer's hat and you've got the competitor's hat. Yeah, now, the professional yeah. golfer, he strives for excellence. Mm. He strives for perfection. He's on the driving range and he's hitting countless balls and he wants it to be perfect and he's being hard on himself. And that's good because that's what got him there. Mm. You know, being hard on himself is what got him to that level. But then the competition for me is the reward for the work yeah, you've done. Yeah, yeah. So then you've got to take off that, that, mm. that professional's hat and you've got to put on the competitor's hat. Now the competitor, he's got to be not looking for perfection. Mm. He's got to be his own best mate, his own biggest fan. He's got to be there for himself. And he's got to, he's got to understand that if I make a mistake, mm. if I do something negative, that's a trigger to make me more determined, not go the other way. So it's really hard yeah, to yeah, change yeah. that mm. because these guys are so good, and especially in tennis and golf where there's a lot of technical stuff, these guys are so good, they can still have a career mm. without doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But in the end, it's are you ever going to be the best you mm. can be? And, and sure, it looks good to be top 50 in the world and whatever, but if you can be a top 50... And maybe being a top tenner, you know, it's it's hard for guys to change those th- those thoughts because they're being successful to a certain yeah, level, yeah, yeah. Mm. but not to yeah, what's going to drive them to get to the next level. So, Brett, you've made the transition from um, team sport to individual sport to work in tennis. 
Uh, can you talk us through the transition, but also the difference in culture between uh, team sports and individual sports? Yeah, well, the transition was, uh, I mean, the, the funny thing for me is I never had any ambition to be on the tennis tour. Mm. And I had an opportunity to go to the US Open um, in 1993. That was straight after the last game of the AFL season there. And um, I was I was there with a guy, Wally Masur, and he said, look, come over. And, and there was a trainer at our club. He... he um, he had some connections at in Boca Raton at a at a, a tennis academy there. And I said, "Look, come over and you can do a little bit of work at the academy, and then maybe come to Europe and whatever." So I went to the first U.S. Open with Wally. Um, he he made the semis that year, which was his best result. It had nothing to do with me, by the way. I just happened to be in the right place at the right way, the right time, and and I was as green as you could be. I was a 32 year old who'd done a couple of trips to the states with Rusey. Um, but hadn't really travelled that much and, you know, I was there, you know, Wally, and they all thought it was a great joke. Like Wally's saying, oh, Moose, go and get yourself a massage and the massages were for players only and I was in there getting a massage and, you know, <laughs> taking up a bench that a player should have been on. And, and uh, But it was a great time and for Wally to make the semis there, you know, was awesome but it had nothing to do with me. Um, but he said, come on, Moose, you're going you're to come to Europe with us. And I went, ended up going, there was a big tournament there, the Grand Slam, the Grand Slam um, tournament in, uh, in Germany and where all the, the top performers at the Grand Slams got there and it was like 100,000 to lose first round. So everything mm -hmm. was laid on. And so I started at the very top, you know, at the <laughs> US Open, the, all these big money tournaments. I then went back and uh, did a little bit of work at the – at the academy in Florida, knowing nothing about tennis. And at one stage I was actually running the whole program as far as I was in charge of making sure the kids' attitudes were great. And I think it's a really good point though, because I want to interrupt there. Because you touched on the journey and never knowing where you're going to get to. Because I talk about you a lot in terms of because you got the process so right, that opportunity opened up. So you didn't play any tennis or much tennis as a kid. You were really there as a fitness person that had walked the walk, not yeah. not as an academic that had sort of studied books or anything like that. So I think it's a really important point to touch on, yeah, because the, the connection with um, the fitness guy, then the, the Australian players we'd sort of met through that connection, they saw you as someone that could help them. That could you could say this guy lives and breathes what he does. He can help us, and that's how you really ended up there, wasn't it? Well, yeah, it is. I I ended up. You know, I ended up uh, after being in this academy for a while, and obviously, you know, I would do things like I'd see, and I didn't understand the tennis culture, and you know, kids would throw their rackets down. I go, okay, guys, everyone over here, we're going for a kilometre run, and I'd run them, yeah. and eventually there were no rackets hitting mm. the ground, <laughs> you know, and and I remember though too, I was very green as far as understanding, you know, I remember talking to him, if you kids are fair income. I'm talking to a whole bunch of American kids and they got no clue what fair income means. You know, I didn't realise till years yeah. later. So they were probably thinking, what's he talking about? Yeah. You know, but, but the fact was it, I, I was oblivious to the tennis culture. I knew mm. the culture I was from. Yep. And I think that's why I had an impact. And, and I actually talked to some of the athletes I work with now. There's a young skier I'm working with and they don't make a lot of money and their future is a little bit like... Yeah whatever, but I actually say, listen, mate, your goal right now, you can, you're an elite athlete right now. You've got to give your best, but you can do what I'm doing, but you've got to walk the walk, you know, and if you walk the walk, you can then talk the talk. And 
I think what a lot of tennis guys would see me on the tour, you know, would be at the courts working out, and then they'd see me running back to the hotel while they're yeah. in the mm-hmm. they're in the the transportation van, and they and in the end they're going, "Who's this crazy Aussie guy?" You know, and and I think that's how I sort of gained my reputation by, and especially when I I trained the players, I would do all my work, I would do all the work with them, and a lot of times I was better than them in the early days, and I think. That's how I sort of got a reputation because I was keeping it real. Yeah. And taking on Murph's point, when you first arrived, you were unencumbered. You didn't know what that culture looked like and you've, you've touched on one example. But what, was, what were some of the things you felt individual athletes didn't really get or were better at? What, what, was there a distinction between coming from a team sport and then suddenly working with individual athletes? Yeah, I think... In some ways, I was a little jealous mm. as far as because an individual athlete, he's the CEO. Yeah. He's the boss. He's, he's the coach. He's the one who makes the decisions, you know. And I was like, gee, I would have loved to have been mm. in that position because then I wouldn't have had to rely on getting picked in a team. And, yep. and I often had that argument with individual athletes as far as, oh, it's easy for you. You're in a team. And I go, hang on, mate. Yeah. You, you can play next week. If you play the worst match you've ever played, mm. You still play the next You'll week. You'll play next week. Yeah, There's yeah, no yeah. one saying you can't play anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so you can do that. And and I think um, the, the team environment, you have to you have to go by the team rules. Mm. And if you don't, you're out of the team. Whereas an individual athlete, he makes his own rules. Mm. So that's why it's easy for these guys to go off yeah. and have down moments because there's no one holding them accountable. Yep. Yep. So that's why it's important to have a good team around you to try and keep you moving in the right direction. And obviously, just like a team, it's only one person, but they might have their little team, but they've got to try and tick all those disciplined boxes. So I think it's, sure, for the people who are disciplined, that's they can do that. Yep. But for the ones who aren't undisciplined, they need to learn that and understand how can I keep giving my best. And it is lonely being an individual athlete. Like I was speaking to one of the golfers the other day, you know, with the COVID thing going on, he's in quarantine at yeah, every yeah. tournament. Mm. He goes, mate, it's tough. It's lonely yeah. out here. You know, I can't do anything. I play mm. golf and go to my hotel room. Mm. So, yeah, I think the, the big difference, yeah, sure, it helps being in a team environment, but you have that other, yeah. that other factor where you're not in control of everything. And but as an individual athlete, it's tough if you're doing it on your own. So it's good to have a support team to keep you moving in the right direction. But how hard was that for you as a driven, a really driven individual in a team sport? How frustrating was it for you to see someone that absolutely controlled their own destiny, pick what time they get up, pick how hard they trained? How hard was that for you watching talented individual athletes not reach their potential? Yeah, it was hard, but you probably wouldn't have had a job mm. if, if, they're all, yeah. if they yeah. were all <laughs> robots got it. and yeah. they could do it. And, yeah. and I sort of think that's what keeps you in the job. And, it, and for me, the great thing I love about that job of trying to mentor athletes is, you know, I've got to work out how to get the best out of this guy. You know, how can I help him be the best he can be? Mm. And that's the challenge. And some things will work with some guys and some things won't work with other guys. And some guys will never get it. Yeah. You know, and I'm not saying so that So it's I, very much about 
understand their individual personalities, which we do yeah, a lot of. Do a lot so of understanding them, what makes them tick individually. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, under, understanding and trying to help them realise what they're trying to do. Mm. And, and it's not just going to happen, you know. Murph and I could sit down and go, okay, Murph, you've got to do this. You've got to stop wearing striped shirts because they went out in the late 80s, you know. They're back. But they, you're trying to bring them back, which is no. that's a positive that you can turn yeah. a negative into a positive, yeah. which is great. <laughs> but it is just trying to understand. And yeah. look, I always like to try and keep it relaxed because I learnt that, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. way back mm. in the day. I'm like, I always, if I'm going to uh, give feedback, constructive feedback, I'm going to do it in a positive manner. Yeah. I'm not going to do it in a manner like, listen, mate, you've got to be like this. Yeah, I'm yeah. all going to be like, okay, just need to improve here a bit. But if you do that, you're doing 90% of the things right. If we improve the little one and two percenters, so I like to go down that path of pointing out all the positives and then just pointing out some areas where we can improve a little bit. And whether it's, and, and I think at the elite level, it comes down to simple little things like rest, you know, like understanding diet. Yep. Like, you know, why is uh, you turn on the TV and you see a, a professional tennis player eating in the change of ends? Mm. Now, is that physical or mental? Yeah. You know, it's basically, it's actually mental, mm. you know, because it's the first thing, just, just you know, uh, cutting-edge sports science here, Paul. Just imagine you've carbo-loaded and your energy's right to the top. Soon as your energy levels start to drop, the first thing that gets affected is your brain. Yeah, yeah. So mm. what you're actually doing is you're actually topping up your mm. fuel levels and especially at the start of a match, you know, you know in football and, and you know, in tennis and golf and whatever, at the start, you, when with the nerves, your metabolism's two to three times quicker. Mm. So you're burning calories just by standing there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really important to keep your energy levels up. And then it's really important rest and recovery when you finish and, and proper rest and proper recovery. You know, don't waste time. And, and I always used to get in trouble with players. I go, okay, let's go. Let's take care of your recovery now. I'll get you something to eat. Let's get out of here. Let's get back to the hotel, put your feet up, watch TV or read a book, but, you know, not on the internet, not taking phone calls, resting, you know. So it's understanding all those little subtleties as well. And you, um, you were lucky enough to spend a fair bit of time with a guy called Pete Sampras, one of the greatest of all time. Tell us a little, little bit about working with Pete and what made him so good. So what, what were your observations about him and what, because he, he was at the top for a long time, wasn't he? Well, first I went in, I fixed up his serve, Okay. you know. Yep. He was serving like like real back there and I just got it there like just so he'd get more in, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you don't have to talk to me about tennis. I've seen no, you, you know, I've seen a, your one-handed backhand that goes <laughs> yeah. like that. If you're not using your thumb, you're playing dumb. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was funny stories with Pete. Like we used to... He, he lived in Beverly Hills and um, I, I was lucky enough to live in Santa Monica. So it was a tough life. I had to drive from Santa Monica to Beverly Hills, mm. which is about a 20-minute drive. But we, we did a lot of training at UCLA. And I remember one time he trained on the – hit with the college players there and you get quite a few people would come and watch the practices. And one day he's going, Moose, come in here. I, want, I just want you to show me how to surf. Come on, let's have a bit of a laugh here. So – he hits a serve into the net and I'm going, what is that, man? I, I grab his racket, I throw it on the ground and I, give it here, give it here. And he's like, oh, what? And I go, you're not, you're not doing it right. And 
So I get up there and I go, it's like that. It's more like that. <laughs> Use the wrist more. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. And he gets his head down. Then he gets up and he just booms one down the middle. And I said, look, you know. But Pete, Pete was very good at that relaxed intensity too. Yeah. And the thing that people don't understand, you know, you know, I think Pete got criticised a bit. They say, oh, energy, this and that. But he was... He was so mentally strong. Yeah. You know, th- this guy's mental strength was unbelievable. Like, he, you know, Wimbledon, the break point down, second serve, he would hit a 120 first mm. serve down the middle. Yeah. You know? Um, his last tournament, which he retired a few months later from, he was, he was written off by the tennis world. Yeah. You know? And this is what I talk about resilience. For two years before that, he hadn't won a tournament. Mm. He'd been running up the US Open a couple of times. He'd been close, but he hadn't won a tournament. And he was unbelievable with his attitude. He, he used to talk to me all the time. He goes, you know what, Moose? You know, I know I can still win a Grand Slam. I know I can win another Grand Slam. I know, look, and I'm going to keep going because I know I can do it. And a lot of people doubted it. Mm. You know, even at the US Open that year, he won his first round against a Greg Rosetsky and he was famous in the press saying, oh, he's no good, Sampras. He'll never, mm. he'll never win another one. And, you know, that US Open, and I, you know, this is how quick time flies because I haven't even looked at it since then and I'd love to sit down and look at the last set because it was one of the gutsiest things I've ever seen in sport. And, you know, these things moments just disappear into the mass of other moments, but... He, he struggled at the US Open physically because they used to have a semi-final on Saturday, then the final on Sunday. And we thought physically he's not going to be able to handle it. So the whole tournament you've got a day off in between and mm. then you've got to play the semi and the final back to back. And that was part of the reason we thought he was struggling. Well, when he won the US Open in his last tournament, there were rain delays. He played five matches in seven days. Mm. You know, And he'd worked his butt off in all that time. But he was, he came out in the final against Andre, who he loved playing. He felt like he had him mentally. And he reeled off the first two sets. He was on fire. But then all of a sudden in the third set, he started to hit the wall. You could Mm. see physically his energy had gone down and he was struggling. He lost the third set. And we were like, oh no, man, he's got so close. You know, this is not looking great. And get to the fourth set, and Pete's got a bit of the hangdog thing going, but he's he's holding serve. He's saving break points. He he saved break points. If he had lost that set, yeah, yeah. it was done. He mm. saved break points with second serve, serve and volleys mm. against the best returner in the game. He was willing to put it all on the line and and take calculated risks, knowing that if it didn't work, he would fail. But also knowing that if he didn't do that, he would be disappointed in himself. Mm-hmm. And and in the end, it got to four all in the in the fourth set. Andre serving, and that's where Pete wanted to be. And all of a sudden, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's jogging on the spot, mm. you know. And the first, Andre looks down and sees him jogging, and then Andre's first serve fault, second serve, Pete chips and charges, boom, hits away a volley, and come on, and he doesn't. He's not that emotional, mm. you know, and then wins the next point, wins the next point. Um, I forget what the score was in the game. Breaks Andre, comes out, serves it out. He's won the Grand Slam. And the one that 
everyone thought there's no way he can do this. And for me, that was one of the biggest moments I've ever seen as far as someone you're involved with mm. to be that gutsy and, you know, it was but It's also breaking down the concepts, isn't it? Because we talk a lot about uh, a skill-based, talent-based team as opposed to a behavioural-based team. And obviously it's, it's minuscule in tennis. I mean, they're, they're so technical and so good. But when you're talking through and having watched a lot of tennis over the years, his ability to stay present, his ability yeah. – and, and I don't know whether you watched The Last Dance with Michael Jordan. They talked about Michael Jordan. I've never seen anyone so present. And people misinterpret some of the concepts. But the ability to stay present is really in those difficult moments – understanding what you're capable of doing, understanding what you're not capable of doing, being really present and the ability to make decisions in those moments. And he was as good as anyone at doing that. Yeah, yeah. He, he had an unbelievable strength and and he definitely maximised his strength. Yeah, yeah. You know? And look, maybe he could have played on, but but I remember we did the whole pre-season after that and um, we got to December and he going, you know what, Moose, I, I feel like I'm on such a high after winning that Grand Slam. Mm. Why not finish this way? Mm-hmm. And look, we I had a, a great time. I, I was with him the last five years of his career, and and I took him from one to I think twelve, which no one else could <laughs> yeah, do. That's great. You know, so I was um, that was a great achievement, Paul. Took me five years to do it though, so he hung in there. <laughs> <laughs> but he did have a different goal, which is interesting, isn't it? Because you talk a lot about enjoying the journey, so. It's probably worth exploring that as well. So Pete's probably gone from being wanting to play at every tennis tournament, being the number one tennis player in the world. Take me through his mind in transitioning because as a high-profile athlete and an athlete that is number one, to almost say, well, I'm going to give up that number one ranking yeah. because my goals have changed. T- take us through that. Well, I think basically, you know, they're in such rare air, guys mm. like Federer and Nadal and Pete and Andre and all these guys who are, you know, they're looking at history. You know, so Pete's goal was, well, I've been number one yep. in the world six years, yeah. which was a record and I think it still might be or Roger might have equaled it, I'm mm. not sure. But the fact that they're chasing greatness. Yeah. So I think it wasn't hard for him to let that go because it was really difficult to mm. stay number one too. Yeah. There's a lot of energy, you know, a lot of extra time with interviews and this and that. So I think he was on a mission to to be the greatest mm. Grand Slam winner. And but the most impressive thing for me was that that um, he actually decided to to go with me and and mm. he knew how hard I worked and and how strict I was. And and one of the first things when he rang me was I said, look, I'm happy to come there. And work with you, but you've got to do what I tell you to do. Mm. And Which is a big step for the number one tennis player in the world yeah. to look to get better. Even though he dropped rankings, yeah. he was yeah. fi- effectively looking to improve. No, exactly. And, and that's why I, you know, I point that out to a number of athletes I work with mm. now too. I said, why would someone like Pete Sampras, who's been number one in the world, all of a sudden decide that he needs to get in better shape? Mm. You know, so look, he was had incredible mindset but and he didn't enjoy the physical training yeah, yeah, yeah. so for him to embrace that just you know just comes back to embracing mm. that adversity and yeah. and knowing that if you're going to have success you've got to be willing to get uncomfortable and, and I, I and you would agree Paul uh, you know I don't and Murph I'll include you in that you would Thanks agree so. bit yeah. there Murph <laughs> let me let me hear what you're going to say first <laughs> I think I've forgotten <laughs> <laughs> but 
Look, success doesn't come without adversity. Now, yeah. I don't know mm. if that's a cliche or whatever, mm. but it doesn't. You know, every single person has a story yeah. of adversity. Yeah. Every single professional athlete, every mm. single successful CEO doesn't just turn up and they're successful. Yeah. Mm. You've got to put in the work, you know, and if you don't put in the work, don't expect you're going to get the success. And, hey, we're not all lucky enough to have great success like Pete Sampras, but there's different levels yeah, of yeah. success. Yeah. And um, is it has it been much of a shift in the, I guess, the culture of the tennis tour, like, because it seems like those senior players are, are maintaining their superiority or their or their <coughs> rankings, and the, the young guys aren't coming through. Like, yeah, well, you know, I've got a bit of a theory on that, and maybe I'm way off the mark, but I feel like Djokovic, Nadal, and Roger were all brought up in the era before social media. Mm. Okay, um, they had years when basically there wasn't even the mobile phones. Mm. Now, they're from the old era. The new guys coming through, the fact that Rogers won 20, Ruffers won yeah. 18 mm. or 19, mm. uh, Djokovic has won 16. No one has come through from the new generation to challenge these guys. Sure, there's been a Which few has who, never happened before. No, really, it hasn't. Tennis, never. And I, I just think it's that whole shift of yep. all the different things that go with the new age, with social media and 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 availability as far as internet and texting and the whole thing, I think that's wasted a lot of energy for mm. these kids. And I think it's it's a lot harder to come through now and be able to do what those guys have done. Those guys are still set back in the day. Yeah. Is and it, they is have it, those mindsets. Is it because of the distraction or is, do you think it um, takes a lot of time mentally or physically or both? I, I think it's I think it's the the rest. I think it's got a lot to do with it's definitely the mental side of it as far as there's more distractions, there's more things that you take care of and you know, the fact that you know people are doing their social media and then they're reading other negative vibes and, and the whole thing, I, I definitely think that has an impact because at that level they're all so good, it only takes a tiny little percentage to put them off. Mm. Now I'm not saying that the new generation's not good. They're probably more talented as far as their game and the way the game's evolved. But you've really got to understand those subtleties at the very top. You know, we're talking at the very top of the game. Now, if you're not ticking that box for rest and yeah, and if you're not taking care of that, for me, that's a massive thing mm. because I, I give a goal to every athlete I work with. I go, okay, I want you to get to each event, number one, physically healthy and equal number one, uh fresh in the mind. They're the two goals I give them. I want you to be, and then when we get to the tournament, it's not about training, it's about recovery and rest. So you can get out there with a fresh mind, you can have that peripheral vision, you're not tired and you get that tunnel vision where it's easy to start being hard on yourself. I want you to shut all that down and just concentrate on one thing that's being fresh in the mind so you can get out there and give yourself your best shot. But do you think it is the simple concepts that get missed because listening to your talk it, and the successful mm. people we've had on the culture couch all talk about a lot of the same things. But to your point about this next generation of tennis players, and it's not unusual for tennis players, it's, it's similar most of the, whether it's work or, or other sports, really simple competence still work. The ability to work hard, play tennis, hit as many tennis balls as you can, run, get as fit as you can, get as much sleep as you can, Eat as best you can. 
how do they not get, which I'm agreeing with what you're saying, yeah. but it's the simple concepts that have been lost through this process of noise that's now generated through social media. Yeah, you're right. It goes back to what I said, Paul. You know, like our biggest strength is we don't complicate it, mm. being from that era. And yeah. Murph, you're from that era too, or you from before that era. No, a bit later, I think. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, it is. It's, and, and it really is about simplifying it. And, but that's the hardest thing to mm. do. And, yep. and I get it, though. I get yep. it. You know, like a lot of times if I send a message to, to a, a player who's playing in, in the States or whatever, it'll be, okay, simplify your thoughts, reset, recover, and look forward to the next challenge. You know, and, and nothing's changed since mm. 1979 mm. when I started at Essendon. Yeah. You know, you still, I don't think the diet's changed. You know, mm. it was carbo loading. It yeah, was, yeah, yeah. you know, it was, it was trying to get yourself in great shape and trying to get good rest. I don't think anything's really changed, nah. but things appear more complicated mm. because we've had great advances in sports yeah, science yeah. and there's a lot of nutritional advice out there. But really, what's important is, getting out there and understanding how to be the best competitor you can be and and don't complicate it. And the old can't see the forest because of yep. the trees thing. Mm. There's so many distractions now with media, social media, different diets, different training methods. Yep. But if you could, you could go right back to the 70s and train exactly how they did then and still have great yeah. success yep. if yep. you go out with the right mindset. And Brett, what advice would you give to a young Brett who was just starting out? So looking back now, what would you, what would you say to yourself? Um, probably not go with the mullet hairstyle back in the uh, back in the eighties. You and, and Rizzi, following yeah. Paul's, uh, yeah, it was they've, a competition come, who had the best mullet. They've come back in. <laughs> I, I think um, just just like I said earlier, try and learn how to to be more relaxed as far as not being so hard on yourself. I think that would be the the biggest thing. And, and, and also believing that anything is possible, you know, and not yeah. feeling that mm. it's out of your reach. And, but you don't know that as a young fella. No. You know, and, and especially, you know, as a young guy, you, you know, I walk into Essendon Change Room at 17, there's Simon Madden and all these greats, and I'm just sitting there like, oh, wow, you know. But obviously you've got to learn. You've got to be there to experience to learn it, but then understand that everyone's human and and no one's perfect and and really just being able to go out there and just keep giving your best and but for me it was definitely that learning how to relax a bit more mate unbelievable conversation i, I knew it'd be great because i talk a lot about you brett and i've seen the journey it's an incredible journey mm. and one that probably hasn't been told often enough and and the things i like Murph, the things that we talk about just stick to the process all the time keep it really really simple don't overcomplicate it and, you know, in sport in particular, it's never going out of fashion just to, to run, I get love, as fit I'll, as you can be. Yeah, I love your phrase. What was it? In the end... We're all champions. You're still a champion? Mm. Or yeah. What was it? Yeah, well, in the end, we're, we're all number ones if we, if we give our best, mm. yeah. you know, and, and that's why, like, you know, it's funny even in football, you know, they, they talk about you're only a success if you win a premiership. Well, I don't agree, mm. you know. I know I've got great friendships with my mates at Fitzroy, and yep. Rusey does too. We didn't win a premiership, but you know what? We gave it our best. You mm. didn't ever you actually didn't tell any stories about 
That's the Rizzi next culture couch, Murph. We haven't got yeah, time. Well, well, nah, we haven't got time. We're going to wrap it up right now <laughs> because Brett's got to get back to his lovely wife, Cara, and his kids. Okay, yes, we don't want to take yes. too much sure? of his time. Um, mate, great conversation. Really great, simple concepts. And, a, and as I said, a story that hasn't been told. So, Steve, fantastic. Thanks for sharing those stories, both from a team point of view, your journey, which was incredible journey, the resilience, getting to Fitzroy, and the amazing stories with tennis. So, Murph, thanks again. Thanks, Thanks Steve. Thanks, Steve. Thanks very much for joining us all on the Culture Couch. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.